Welcome, everyone, to True Crime Archive's first episode. I'm Hannah. And I'm Steve. And today we are going to be talking about um, the 1997 murder of Catherine Rice and her two sons, Benjamin Rice, who's four years old, and Ryan Contos, who's two months old, um, at the hands of her long-term boyfriend, Peter Contos. Um, so do you want to talk about, Dad, why we're talking about this and why it's important? So we selected this case first because, well, it, it's it's interesting in that it's a uh, sort of a double life, someone that lived a double life, and uh, because he felt threatened, he ended up committing a triple homicide, triple murder. Uh, but the interesting thing about the double life is that he was part of the Air National Guard in Massachusetts, and he sort of duped a lot of people. Um, I was one of those. I, I served right alongside of him. So we're going to sort of share it from from that perspective. Um, so he he fooled a lot of people to include uh, his, his girlfriend, Catherine Rice, um, because what's even more interesting is he was also married. Yeah. And he met them both at the same time. Same time, yeah. <laughs> um, which is really sad. Him and so him and Catherine met in 1992 when he was working at Sears as a security guard. Mm-hmm. So that is before he joined. No, it was. I, I'm not. I don't really remember those uh, details because I got there around 1995. So I got to that that assignment in 1995. So he was he was uh, around there, maybe ni- maybe even 96 because he served on active duty. From I think eighty six to maybe ninety six, so um, somewhere around ninety five, ninety six, is when I uh, had met him. Oh, so, okay. so okay, so at that time he was, he had met Catherine Rice when in nineteen ninety four. So he met her in nineteen ninety two, and, and that's around the same time that he met Robin, which would be his wife later on. Okay, so he met two girlfriends mm-hmm. at the same time, mm-hmm. and then he got married. To Robin when? In August of 1996. Okay. August of 1996, he gets married to Robin. Mm-hmm. Robin's 23 years old and Catherine's uh, 31, I think, in, in early 30s. Yes. And yeah. the murder happened in September of 1997. Yes. Right. So he's, he's off to a good start. <laughs> he's, leading a double, he's leading a double life. He's... He's telling each one of these uh, young ladies that his job with the Air Force, with the Air National Guard, has him traveling all the time, and he cannot tell them where he's going or what he's doing. And he had them both both convinced of that. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I, I would believe that, too, especially if I didn't know anything. Okay, um, so what about the children? Who Who's the dad of the children? So he is... Um, from everything I read, he is the father of both of the boys, mm-hmm. Benjamin and Ryan. Um, but Benjamin, who is older, has Catherine's last name, um, mm-hmm. and Ryan has his last name, Contos. Okay, and so from, how old was Ryan? So Ryan, it was two months, two months old. Okay, so if, just you, a baby. if you're paying attention to the timeline, so Ryan was two months old. He had been married, Peter Contos had been married to... Um, what what's his wife's name? Had been married to Robin, Robin mm-hmm. for a year. Mm-hmm. So 
you can kind of see what kind of life he was yeah. living and what kind of um, deceit he was sort of portraying on them. So now, now kind of enter the the International Guard side. Myself and a lot of others, you know, we would meet once a month for the National Guard weekend and a couple times over the summer, and we knew that he had a girlfriend. We knew that he had a girlfriend, Robin, and that he had just gotten married, and so we knew he had been married. Knew nothing of another girlfriend, let alone two children. And at this point, one of the children is four years old. Correct. So. And, and and as we so in 1997, so let's see, September. He's four so, years old. So all of 1997, his girlfriend is pregnant mm-hmm. with with the second child, mm-hmm. and he's married. So now we're interacting with him, and it, you know, I guess the shifts that we work w- sometimes were predominantly males. So you would think that, that conversation would come up, and and it didn't. In fact, I remember having a conversation with him about hey now that you're married you know you won't be able to go travel all the time when you have kids you know it, it's it's a lot different once you have children you know you got to kind of think differently had that very conversation with him with this jerk and all the time he was more experienced at being a father <laughs> technically than I was yeah so <laughs> you know so I, I think the prevailing thought at the unit was we knew he was married, and that that was it. Nobody, nobody knew that he had this secret uh, double life. And you know, at the risk, you know, we in our podcast, we don't want to, we don't want to paint the the bad guy, and you know, we want to highlight the other the other folks. But just for a quick yeah. second, he was pretty pretty good um, sergeant. He he had pretty good career thus far. When he was on active duty, he taught um, a, a course that was pretty prestigious. So he was he's well liked and and pretty sharp and and um, yeah, just a prominent um, person in the unit. Yeah. So, so you had no idea. Um, so then on September twenty sixth, nineteen ninety seven, um, after work, he drove out to Lowell to see Catherine and end the relationship. And so he's driving from Otis Air National Guard, mm-hmm. the base. Um, which is about an hour and a half. Yes, hour and a half. So he drove out there to see her and potentially end the relationship. Yeah, let's let's talk about his status at that time, so people w- will understand. So the Air National Guard has sort of three statuses of people. They have what's called traditional guardsmen and women. You you go to basic training or, or what have you, officer candidate school, and you become a guardsman. And you once a month you um, drill. It's called drill. Once a month, you you, you spend the weekend at, at the base, and then two weeks over the summer. The second status is active duty with the National Guard, active guard reserve. I, I was one of those, and y- you're there because the base has to be maintained. There's still a real mission. In this particular case, there was some F-15s that, that were sort of uh, there, real world mission. Um, so you have those active duty, and then you had technicians. These were sort of civilian employees who they they did the same job as they did as traditional guardsmen, and then when that weekend was over, they just turned around and put a different uniform on, and they were out there full-time getting sort of a government paycheck to maintain the aircraft and do maintain the base and, and other things. But there's one more sort of status. is Each year, units get X amount of days that they can have people 
who are traditional come on what's called orders and work 30, 60, 90 days and and work in a full-time capacity. And he was he was in that capacity. He was uh, Picantos was was on orders, I don't know, 90 days, I can't I can't remember, and he was contemplating um becoming a, a an active duty guardsman because we weren't really sure what he was doing it, we know that he did some sort of security job uh, i think he was in between jobs so that's why he was he was on orders and that that happens a lot and some of the people we're going to talk about they were also on order orders too some of the good cops that w- were there and and by the way this is a a police unit so we're yeah we're military police and the air force was called air force security forces in fact like a year or two before it just changed from security police to air force security forces but we had the law enforcement mission so we're yeah so he was a cop we were all cops yeah (laughs) so you he had knowledge all this Uh, yes so so he's on so he's on orders so he's also staying in the dormitory which who outside of the the traditional weekend that can be spooky there's nobody there's nobody there and and real quick let me just sort of paint another picture for everybody otis air national guard base is on what's called Massachusetts Military Reservation. This is incorporated into three towns, Sandwich, Massachusetts, Bourne, Massachusetts, and Mashpee, Massachusetts. It's very, very big. It used to be Otis Air Force Base uh, in the 50s and 60s. But it has a it has a Army National Guard base, a Coast Guard uh, base, um, I think a Navy. It's got mm-hmm. all the services, the National Guard. So a lot of the base was desolate and dark, and you could get lost for, for days. And we we did have a patrol outside of our little Air National Guard post. We had a patrol outside of that on the rest of the reservation to check a few a few things. And that, that's pertinent here uh, a little bit later on. But so, yeah, yeah. That's, that's sort of the picture of what's going on. So even uh, when he w- when you were on like the ninety days, you would s- have to stay in the dorms on base. You couldn't like live because what'll come into play later is he did he was living with his wife in a house. Yeah. So like for me, I, we lived in Barnstable at the time. You yeah. you were very young. You may not remember. Um, uh, so is that the house on the Cape. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I remember yeah, that we, house. We used, to, we used to go when I worked night shift. Yeah. We used to go down to that pond. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. That's where. <laughs> That's where we lived. So, so I could stay at home, but but you you could drive if you wanted to drive an hour and a half. If he wanted to drive an hour and a half from Lowell, he he could have, but he also had that option to stay stay in the dormitory as well. Oh, okay, so he made that option. He yes. made that choice. Okay. I mean, there's nobody clean in the dormitory. You have to bring your own linens and, and such, but you oh. had that you had that option. Yeah. Okay. Um. So then, Peter and Robin moved in together in 1994 too. So two years after he met Catherine and her, they moved in together. Yes. So he was living with her, and that was – I think that was in – that was closer to Otis. That wasn't Lowell. Yeah. Oh, I mean, Catherine were living yeah, in Lowell. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't I don't remember that, and we know that Catherine and her family have been sort of mums the word. They haven't yeah. – they haven't spoken out, and they haven't uh, provided much much information, but it was it was closer. Yeah. Um. So then – so he – that's – he drove out to Lowell to end the relationship, and then that's when he – um strangled her and the boys she i guess was threatening to uh tell his wife and tell everyone um he was kind of she was kind of giving him like an ultimatum yeah she was getting um increasingly frustrated with the fact that 
uh, she couldn't get a hold of him, and he was never around. Of course, this whole time he's telling her, oh, I'm on some secret squirrel mission. Uh, I, uh, you can't, I can't tell you where I'm at, and you won't be able to call me. You know, just lying straight up with these, knowing that he had these two children. And she started calling him, and there was um, sort of a witness, or I, I remember talking to somebody that that at one point maybe he got a phone call while he was on duty and it was pretty pretty frustrated and he got mad and they they sort of believed this was this was her but apparently she started to threaten I'm going to come down there and I'm going to tell your commander that you know you're not taking care of me and our children and so so that was that was the um stressor the the pre-stressor in his life uh I, I think that maybe you know pointed him in this direction but yeah so he that one night, uh, what the twenty seventh, twenty sixth of September is that when it was? Yeah, 1997? It was September twenty sixth, nineteen ninety seven. That's when he drives back to Lowell after mm-hmm. he gets off of a, a night shift, and he, and he drives he drives up there to what he had told police later is to to end uh, the relationship. Yeah, and she did not like that, um, and so they got into a fight, is what he says, and he changes the story multiple times. About different fights, he left after the fight. He came back. He'll, he'll change his story on yes, how the fight happened. Yes, we'll, we'll, we can talk about that too. That yeah, um, when he's confessing to the police, because you know, at first, didn't he say that he didn't go in the house? At first, he said he hadn't seen her since Christmas. Right, and then he said, "Okay, yeah, I did see her that Friday night, but I didn't go into the house. I just drove out there." Which he drove out an hour and a half and didn't go in the house. Right. <laughs> Uh, okay, so what's important about about this? How did um, so w- whatever happened in the house, whether he got in an argument or he went there just just to uh, kill him? He um, what we had heard and were told uh, through the investigators later on is, you know, he actually cleaned up uh, the the apartment. He wiped down fingerprints and things like that, and he but he he left a fingerprint underneath the toilet as he was wiping things down because. I believe so. She was strangled, and she was left in the, in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, you can only imagine, um, you know, him pit wiping down things and trying to wipe down fingerprints. But they they have them in the house, which is not necessarily a big deal because he had a relationship with her, and he's yeah. been seen in the house. So, him placing him in the house was not as important as placing him there at a certain time. So, let's talk about that. Like, what what was the timeline? What when was he? So that's been like widely disputed because it's changed over the course of like his story. But um, when when it comes down to it, it says that he got there at 1 a.m. to her house um, and then he left sometime early in the morning to make it back to the base. Right. So when he when he was questioned by the police, he had said that he had said that he left the base on the spur of the moment. This is as we mentioned this minute ago, he left the base at the spur of the moment. And got to her house about 6 a.m. and thought she was an early riser and was going to have coffee. But when he saw that the door was closed or or, or the or the um, she didn't look like she was up, he just turned around and went back to the base. Mm-hmm. But on further question, and I think it was amended through his statement that it was about 1 a.m. that um, that he got there. Right. Because um, if so, he when he you guys were doing shifts and he was working. How, I mean, how late would he have? left the base if he left the base the night before it was only an hour and a half it wouldn't have taken no you know, it 12 have taken hours so. yeah okay so 
where are we at? So we're kind of talking. So he he leaves. He goes down there and, and he kills. Uh, so what happens? How does he how does he get caught? Um, so there was actually uh, Catherine's landlady and neighbor. She um, was really familiar with him and his. She said the sound of his boots. He was over there so often she could hear him, you know, coming in in the middle of the night. Um, she noticed that the blinds were drawn and that her car was still, that Catherine's car was still in the driveway. And so, um, the landlady actually called Catherine's parents and after speaking with them, she decided to just enter the apartment um, because, you know, they hadn't heard from her or anything. Um, and when they, her and her son, the landlady and her son entered the apartment, they found, um, Catherine in the tub. She had been strangled, um, and they couldn't find the boys anywhere. So, you know, that's when they alerted the police. And so, and she gave the police Peter's name, right? So she knew, <laughs> she and, knew him, <laughs> and right because his children. Oh my God, does he have the children? Yeah. That, nobody knows what's going on at this point. They don't even know if he's okay. at this point. They right. don't know if you know something's wrong with him. Also, if, that's like, a good he's point. Missing. Yeah, that's a good point. So they they called the base and uh, they get in charge. They get in in touch with the person that's in charge on, on the shift, and they said, "Hey, look, we're looking for Sergeant Peter Contos." Um, his, his, you know, his children are missing. Something to that effect. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if they had said, "Hey, his 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 girlfriend or wife was been murdered," but they they had said his children uh, were missing, and that was confusing to the the folks on duty. Um, some really good cops, some people that I know, we'll talk about here in a second. They said, "What? We're not, we're not aware that he has any children." So again. Back yeah. to what I talked about earlier, we're we know this guy. We know he's recently married a year, uh, and they have no children. So they called him. You know, ag- again, this is somebody who is uh, credible and not to be put into the category of somebody that's probably intended on committing a triple murder. Yeah. So, so they called and they say, "Hey, listen." The Lowell Police Department's calling down here. They're looking for you. They're saying something about your. Your children? What's what's going on? He says, I, I, "I'll take care of it. No, no problem." So I can only imagine that he's thinking, "Wow, now I have to start rationalizing where I was, what's going on, and and what I'm going to do." So he he calls the police and he sets up a time to go in and and talk with them. Uh, this was like that. So the, this is the 27th now. I think we're talking about. Yeah. 27th of September, 1997. The boys are going to end up being found at night on the 27th. So he's in there now with the police, and they read him his rights, and they're, and they're questioning him. And he, this is one of the things that was sort of uh, addressed on appeal, uh, was his discussion, his confession. So he says some ambiguous words like, I think I'm going to stop talking now. And, you know, with rights advisement, you have to uh, affirmatively, I don't want to talk, I want a lawyer. Right. Uh, you know, and there's case laws, plenty, plenty of case law. We'll put it up on, on our on our sites. We'll put up mm-hmm. the the appeals so you can go and read it and, and refer to all the case law. But basically, you know, he said, um, I, I think I want to stop talking now. Or, And he says, if this is the way it's going, and they said, well, what what do you mean is it, if this is the way it's going? He says, if you're charging me, I think I'm going to stop talking. He says, we're, we're just trying to find out what's, what's happening. Yeah. And he says, I think I'm going to stop. And he hands hand motions to the person, to the tape recorder. And they put the tape, they shut the tape off. And then they continued talking. Um, and then 
he amends his time about when he was there, when he wasn't there. And he didn't necessarily give them a full confession, but they ended up arresting him after after that. They did did arrest him. Now. Oh, so they arrested him before they found. Yes. Okay. So I also, we had heard because, you know, we had spent some time with the state police. We'll we'll get to that that part, Mm -hmm. the search in a little bit. We had heard that, that at some point in the confession, the interrogation, that they had said we just we just need to know where the, the children are, and he said something like, he, "There's nothing you can do for the children." That might have come come later or the same time they were they were conducting the search. Yeah. So. Which is so sad. Okay, so that's going on, but what? But now what's happening? Let's talk about. Now we're back at Otis yes. National Guard base, and there's going to be a search and such. Let's let's. So let's while get that of, all is going on, yes. Um, they are searching for the boys. So they, you know, start with his, um, they go to the house and then they start with um, his dorm on base um, where they end up finding, um, you know, a diaper and I think some yogurt. So they at that point have, you know, high hopes that the boys are going to be found and okay. Um, and then at this point, this is where I think you said one of the um, guys that you knew, Sergeant John Stowe, um, is recalling a conversation that he had with Peter. Uh, you know, where Peter relayed that he was storing ammunition in the was it the gear locker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, for safety reasons, they decided to go, yep. you know, look in that locker. All right. Let's talk about about that. So they he's arrested and they decide to go uh, to Otis uh, Air National Guard base and conduct a search. They had all kinds of police departments there. When they searched the room, you had mentioned they found some diapers and uh, uh, yogurt or, or something. Some some things that indicated that maybe he had children there with him. Yeah. But there was also what what they don't talk about is they also he had a mountain bike there that had dirt all over the um the tires, and it had what we call a three bag. It's those green big duffel bags that you carry military gear. Mm-hmm. One of those um around the bike with some plastic bags into in, in, like hanging on the bike like he was out. Like he was out digging a hole or, or something, oh, which yeah. is exactly what what he was doing at some point. We don't know that piece, but we opine that that's w- what he was doing um, to maybe bury the the children later. But so here, so now, now we're kind of cross jurisdiction. So we get Lowell Police. Their jurisdiction is up in in Lowell, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and so now they have to bring in uh, the state police to sort of interact with the Air National Guard because the Air National Guard is sort of a different jurisdiction um when it comes to searching and so you're right there there was a sergeant sergeant stowe he he said hey so so now you have some state police officers and some otis air national guard security police guys that i worked with one sergeant rick mcdonald mcdonald and sergeant wayne Ramondo and stowe that these three top notch um they stowe had said hey listen I recall him saying that he had some he kept some ammunition uh in his locker. Mm-hmm. Okay. So state troopers said, "Okay, let's go. I mean, that's a safety thing. Now, let's forget about the fact that you're not supposed to keep ammunition um right. you know, you should turn it all into the range or shoot it all when you're at the range on shooting uh, uh, on range day. Um but they said, "Okay, let's go do a health and safety inspection." Okay. Okay. Yeah. So under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, what happens 
uh, for searches, there's, there's sort of two things. You have a magistrate that's probably like a colonel or a general that, that is the magistrate and under probable cause can issue a search authorization. So that's search authorization is the same thing as a search warrant. In this particular case, it was a uh, inspection, a health and safety inspection of the locker. Now here's let me give you paint a picture of where these lockers are. So as I explained earlier, how you go outside Otis Air National Guard gate, and then you're on this sort of military Mass- Massachusetts military reservation, which is kind of desolate. It's yeah. some parts of it. These lockers are kind of in the middle. It's it's Air Force Air National Literally Guard property, in like in the middle. You know, a couple streets go by, but uh, and it's dark. There's no lights over there, and you go in the building. I hate it. I didn't put my stuff in there <laughs> because it was just too scary. Yeah. Um, but the lockers were for your use, and you can go in, grab a locker to store your equipment. And you know, you have we had helmets and you know vests, different things, um, cold weather gear, etc. And you can put a lock on it yourself, so that's gonna that's gonna come into play in a second. So so would, they're doing an inspection. The base commander says, "Yep, I authorize you to do an inspection." And there's there's um, certain rules of military evidence uh, in the UCMJ that that allow this. So that inspection has to be done by the Air National Guard police, the state police officer was just standing by uh, i read so when i was reading i read that they specifically requested that a state trooper go with them yes just just in case because the jurisdiction on the property was concurrent mm-hmm. right meaning that that the air force had some jurisdiction and the state police shared some dur- jurisdiction oh. as well um so but these particular lockers inside this particular building belong to the air force so they were doing a this health and safety inspection. So they open it up, and they uh, Sergeant McDonald was kind of the lead on this one, and he's moving things around. He pulls out this backpack and said, oh, man, that's kind of heavy, and sets it to the side. Mm-hmm. And he actually kneels on it to lean in and search, and they didn't find anything. So he picks it up again, and he says, geez, this, is, this feels hard. It feels like one of the helmets that we wear. Uh, and he looked at the state trooper and said, should we, should we search that? And he said, well, what? Would you issue ammunition or helmets that that would fit in there? And the discussion was about what you know would it still fit the scope of the inspection? And they decided that it did. So they open up this backpack and they find the plastic bag. And inside the plastic bag, they found uh, the two children, um, uh, the four year old and the two year old, Benjamin and Ryan. Benjamin yeah. and Ryan. So, so at this point, and there's a lock on there because so they had to bust the lock, which they're they're authorized yeah. in the inspection rules. Um, so, so they found the children. So, I mean, now this, this connects, you know, the murder definitely to, to Peter Contos, uh, at, at this point. Yeah. Um, and so that would be what later he would argue them opening that backpack. Yes. So not just the locker was the backpack. So he, let's kind of recap. So he, he, the, he was agitated. Uh, Catherine Rice was calling him and saying, I'm going to out you. I'm going to. I'm going to tell everybody that you're not taking care of your family and your obligations here. Of course, she didn't know anything about his, his wife. Yeah, I was going to say, so that lends to believe that she had no idea right. that. So the neighbors, witnesses, they saw some things that they uh, they could recall, and it, it points the police right to Peter Contos. Yeah, the one of the neighbors would later testify, which I think was actually the landlady, 
Um, she would later testify that she saw him, uh, you know, loading something into his car th- on the day of the murders. Oh, 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 when he that's, was leaving, leaving. that's correct. It was it was a backpack. She saw him throwing yeah. a backpack. She in, saw in him there. load it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and now they're putting all the pieces together. They they uh, they they're interrogating him, getting some information, um, and then they did a search of his room. They found some evidence, some things that that may lead them to believe that maybe the children were there. And then subsequently, the inspection of the locker where they found the two uh, the two children deceased. Um, so so that's it. That's essentially about about twenty four forty eight hours. Uh, that's what had happened. The opinion is that he had killed the uh, the white uh, the girlfriend and the two children sort of changed uh, the children, put them in clean pajamas, stuffed them into the backpack, threw it in the back of the car, drove back to Otis, locked him in his locker, and went back to normal. And he had been digging a hole. Remember I told you about the mountain bike? And he'd been digging a hole. And sort of the opinion is, because they don't really have this as a confession, the opinion is that on a patrol, remember I said there was a patrol that we would do outside of the the Otis Air National Guard base proper, that that hole was somewhere and he was going to go to his locker. So now, do you see in his mind, he's thinking, oh, this looks normal. I go Because because that locker room, that building was one of the patrols, one of the stops that we would check. So he'd go, he'd get the the backpack, throw it in the cruiser, and that looks normal. And then he would take it out somewhere where he dug these holes and and bury the, the, the children. So that was sort of the belief uh by everybody else so at this point we're all being called so i remember getting a phone call we had a a recall and i remember getting a phone call by the supervisor and i didn't believe him really i actually accused him of having been having been drinking (laughs) i i did i did wow and and so I had a call. I hung up, and I, it was like late on a fr- – I think this was a Friday or a Saturday or something. Friday right? was so, the 26th, yeah, so, so maybe, I think Saturday was the 27th. So maybe it was like fr- Sunday morning, like mm-hmm. late Saturday night. And so I hung up the phone, and I called somebody else and said, no, it's true. So I called I called that supervisor back and apologized. <laughs> um, so we all – they all called us. Um, you had to go in. Uh, down – I think it was either that day or the next day or something, and we all – went down there and kind of just hung out for a couple minutes and talked and they had some you know psychologists and stuff there th- to talk and and that's when the three you know Rich McDonald, Wayne Romando mm-hmm. and then Stowe th- that's when those three g- kind of shared their experiences and we 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 talked about that um so okay so wow it's it's sad it's a sad story mm-hmm. so boys, i mean you just never know who you know i mean this is someone i served with this is yeah. someone that that you know, they, to me, they get credibility walking in the door because they served. I mean, that's I spent my life in the Air Force, and people will get to know us and they'll learn that I was with yeah. the uh, retired as a special agent with the Air Force Office of Special Investigation. So later in my career, I would sort of investigate things like that. So, um, but yeah, um, uh, he, he, somebody we knew, and then somebody we realized we didn't know. Yeah, and so I, my understanding is the wife. Um, Robin, that's the wife, right? Robin, yeah. Robin stood by him through the trial, but she never really, you never really heard anything from yeah. her. When I was doing all my research into this case, I could not find anything. Um, they don't even really talk about her, um, 
in like the official appeals document or like when they're talking about going to his house because they did say that they go to his house with her like at the house out there Mm -hmm. before they went to the dorm so but there I really couldn't find anything even as far as Catherine's family goes they have also been very quiet and silent Um, they don't even want to release pictures of the boys or Catherine Mm -hmm. so both parties okay so he gets convicted um um so he was convicted and sentenced. He was sentenced on February fifth, nineteen ninety nine, um, for three uh, first degree murders. Right. He, the indictments f- for uh, murder in the first degree. Mm-hmm. They they believe that he had deliberate premeditation. So yeah. And there's a lot of a, a lot. I mean, driving an hour and a half back with the. With the kids in a in a nap in a bag in a in a backpack, but actually driving, driving the hour yeah. and a half there, I was gonna he say had plenty driving, of time, right? Yeah, he had plenty of time. He knew what he was doing. He, he had plenty of time to think about it. Yeah. Uh, just 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 too much. So he argued in his defense diminished capacity. You know, he tried to say that um, I she got me mad and I just snapped and went back into my military training and had to had to kill her. Yeah. <laughs> this was the early 90s, um mid or late 90s. So he served 80s to 90s. Um uh, yeah, we we just weren't too and many almost, places the way. And and Yeah, it almost sounded like he was trying to say like PTSD in a way, like he yes. was going back into that like war mode. It's not like he was a Navy SEAL yeah. at war every day killing terrorists every day it's just no we're air force security forces yeah uh, which is, is not to like you know lessen that title or anything no or say, you're right that's a good not point. at all but you know, him specifically i would as a jury member have a hard time listening to that defense mm-hmm. in that time being like well okay did you have firsthand combat did you did you ha- experience yeah, any no, of that it, it, it didn't it didn't uh the jury wasn't convinced of that yeah so no. Now, in he appealed, and his appeal was final in two thousand and one. Yes, two thousand one. So here's what's what's important ab- about the appeal. So obviously, the the confession. He wanted to suppress the confession because he said, "Look, I I asked for a lawyer. I asked, um, you know, I said I wanted to stop." So he tried to suppress the the confession and the search. And I'm telling you right now, if he won that appeal, he would. He would not have been convicted if they could if they had to remove that evidence. I mean that was yeah uh, th- that's pretty important. But the the um you know the the appeals court found that uh, it was reasonable for them to believe that he did not uh, assert his um, right to remain silent and that they how they continued the questioning was acceptable. It was proper. So that was well. And then they turned back on the like you said they turned back on the the recorder so obviously yes. at some point yes. he was like okay you can record again yes yeah, so you have like a good faith yeah. sort of effort um you know uh, that is taken in consideration and then of course the search right sure i would have done the same thing if i was him he yeah he contested that search right that's the search that led to uh finding the the dead children so wait a minute the, wh- where was your search warrant why didn't you have a search warrant well you didn't have a search warrant because of military rules and the UCMJ allow commanders right. to do inspections and and they and there's case law on that and we'll we'll post we'll let everybody know where you could see this uh, the appeals mm-hmm. court document to get the the case law but it it says even though you have your own personal lock on this locker this is there's no uh, reasonable expectation of privacy so that's right. that's what's important about searches if 
if you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, well, then there needs to be probable cause and, and a search yeah. warrant. And so they ruled that to be good. And, and again, uh, Rich McDonald and Wayne Raimondo, they were the ones. I know those guys really, really well. Um, uh, one's retired chief and the other one's uh, was a traditional guardsman. He's still on the police force th- these days. Gr- good good guys. These They know their business. Uh, and they know it well. This was a clean, excellent search. There was a state trooper standing by. Yeah. You know, they try to say the state trooper was conducting and leading the search. It's just just not not the case. Just just not the case. Our unit had credibility with the local uh, state state police uh, barracks. Um, so, because uh, oftentimes felons or criminal bad guys would cut through the the sort of public place. And remember, I told you on those patrols, it was really yeah. I, I hated it. It was it was really dark and dreary and scary. So, um, so the search was good. So they they ruled the search uh, was good. And I suspect some people got educated on military uh, rules of criminal evidence and, and such. And it was the people that went to court, uh, that testified in court, these these three in particular, they, they shared with me later that he kept leaning into his lawyer and he was like he was pushing pressure, putting pressure on his lawyer. No, I know. I, I used to do these searches. I, I know about these things. This is wrong. This is a illegal search. But clearly it, 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 he had it no. Wasn't. <laughs> right. So the lockers were available for anybody, first come, first serve, in in a, um, a building – that wasn't, if I recall, the building wasn't secure. It had doors. The building, it was just a building with lockers in it. And you went in there, you grabbed the locker, and you could secure your um, uh, your stuff in a locker. Even though you could secure it, 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 was, it was property of the government, no expectation yeah. of privacy. So, so it was clean. Now, what's cool or what's interesting, I don't know if it's cool, but it's if for those um, court junkies, uh, perhaps, um, that like to study case law, the the opinion uh, they actually brought up a, a good point. They said, "Look, he didn't argue argue this uh, the staleness of the information, but if he had argued the staleness of the information, we believe it would have still fit within the the proper rules and been a clean search." Right, and you mean the information that he shared, as in uh, keeping ammo in the locker? That's correct. With yep, Stowe. Yes, yeah, Stowe. It said. Like, month or two before I think three months or two two months so if you're so when you're conducting uh, when you believe you have probable cause and you're gonna get a search warrant uh, because this was all done verbally um, Mm -hmm. when you're gonna get a search warrant if you have information that is a little bit older they say stale you don't have probably a reason to get a verbal authorization you probably need to go draft up the affidavit and put it all together, then go get in front of the magistrate, and then swear to the probable cause, and yeah. then he gives you authority, and then you go execute the, the warrant or the, the search authority. Um, but they, the appeals court actually said that. They said he he didn't argue that, which would have been a better argument. Yeah. Um, we might have had, you know, what, what they they're saying yeah. is we might have had to take a harder look, a harder look at this, but the rules of inspection uh, were a little bit different, and, and it all fit in that. So... So again, just some good good police work by yeah. the military police, uh, security police. Um. So my question is though, is that if so, if that fell under the UCMJ, um, how come he was tried in civilian? Like if that part, if that specific like part of the evidence, part of the rules of the search was under the military, how come he was tried in a civilian court? Because he committed this good good question. So he committed the crime in Lowell, Massachusetts. 
and he was a traditional guardsman. So uh, as a traditional guardsman, you're not subject to the UCMJ, okay, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So I know that's weird, right? Because so, they used it uh, to, to do the search. Right, but the property okay, cause it's was subject to the UCMJ uh, okay. for the search. Well, it was subject to the military rules of evidence, MRE, okay. military yeah. rules of evidence. The property was. The person who committed the crime was not subject to the UCMJ, Uniform oh, Code okay. of Military Justice, because they and they committed the crime in Lowell, Massachusetts. So that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. So really, I mean, this kind of thing didn't happen a lot down there, but it just just it goes to show sort of the Lowell Police, the Massachusetts State Police, and then the Air National Guard Police sort of all working together, um, and and it all came together. It was all done properly and good. Good police work and, and fast, which was which is nice oh for the yes, families. Yes. How fast that it didn't have to drag on and Okay, so that's that's pretty much it for this episode. And and we wanted to bring this to light for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, I had personal knowledge of it, so it, it was something that we could we could talk about. You were very very young when this happened, uh, but the other thing is, you know, Catherine Rice and her parents they, they put trust in in this idiot and you know they sort of kept their life private so we we want to just we want people to remember them um and and hope that they have found peace in their life and and to robin he too the his his uh wife um you know we we hope that that she's found peace as well but but mostly we just wanted everybody to sort of remember Catherine rice and and uh, Benjamin Rice and Ryan Contos, the two boys. All right, guys, that was it for our first episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that, stay tuned for more of our dad and daughter talks. There will be more opportunities to reach out to us in the future. Um, but for now, please rate and review our podcast. We'd super appreciate it. And then you can um, follow us on Instagram at True Crime Archives Podcast. Mm-hmm.